500 years. <laughs> Thanks, ladies. Today on 500years.org, it is February 8th, 2016, and we have a really fun topic today. We're going to talk about fascism. Fascism is an economic and political philosophy that, on the economic side, suggests that business should be highly regulated and controlled by government to ensure the right outcomes. And that it also takes other features and outright socializes them, uh, such as education or medicine. And uh, lastly, is often accompanied by extreme nationalism and militarism. Now, today, I really wanted just to talk about the economic part, the third position economics that fascism likes to tout. Now, as everybody knows, fascism has gained one of the worst reputations as a word. In fact, the word itself is a pejorative, and usually it's just used to call something uh, downright evil. And of course, this is because of its disastrous results in Europe during World War II, where lots and lots of people died. And in fact, according to our history books, if we were to believe them, uh, led to the largest single failure in government in all history. Uh, unfortunately, for better or worse, the genocides that uh, occurred during fascism aren't really core to the philosophy itself. Uh, nationalism is, and it's got a cousin in racism, but other fascist economies did not participate in a genocide uh, or that scapegoating. The dilemma with this word fascism, America's F word here, is that it's so incendiary, uh, so supercharged with negativity and fear and, and evil, is that people don't want to actually talk about it or use it in any productive way. But at the same time, the economy and the sort of government in America has taken on many third position fascist elements in how it manages itself. Uh, much like the fascism of old, certain aspects of the functioning economy are socialized, such as education and partially medicine. The other large productive parts of the economy, known as business, are highly regula regulated, uh, subsidized, and otherwise controlled by the government. Now, what happens is people characterize this mixture, this mixed economy of government and corporations as being capitalism. And then every time something seems bad or unfair, uh, nasty or whatever, the term capitalism and the idea of capitalism gets abused. It becomes the C word that people in America like to use. Now, if we don't clear up our understanding of what fascism is and how it applies to the American political and economic state, then we're never really going to get closer to the truth. And everyone's just going to keep on making things more fascistic to get rid of the fascistic elements, which is kind of hard to explain. But it seems like every time we get worried about corporate power, the call from the media and from our friends is that more regulation is needed, which is just further, further tightening the link between corporations and the government. So if we started to have like an honest and objective look at what fascism is and how it applies in America, 
we could do several things. One, if we want to continue thinking it's an abhorrent, evil term, and then we reflect on the fact that we are, in fact, doing it here, then we can call what we're doing evil and abhorrent and try to stop it. If we say, well, you know what? I sort of like this combination of government uh, overtaking business and business overtaking government, then let's just say, okay, good, we have fascism and we like it and we want to continue having it and stop pretending it's something uh, nasty and something that we don't like. Or we say, oh my God, look, we do have fascism here and it's not a very good bundle of ideas. Let's get rid of it. Let's move to something different. Any of those are better outcomes than what we have now, which is we say that we have uh, freedom and capitalism and instead just have this ugly fascism. One of the problems we have in understanding fascism here in America is that we have fascism without philosophy. Back when they were pioneering this economic and political philosophy, they actually used to write books about it and explain why it was good, why it was good for the people, why it was good for the state, how it would work. Um, Mussolini and Hitler wrote books, and they would explain that this is the philosophy we have going forward. It's good, and we're going to pursue it. Here in America, we don't have a philosophy of fascism. There's no one in the government who seems to write a book saying, we would really like this entanglement of corporations and the regulators and the governors to fit in nicely because we think that's going to be a really productive way to go forward. Uh, it just doesn't seem to exist. It's not really taught in schools that way. In the, the 13 years of public education, nowhere was I ever told, like, here's America and here's why the joining of, of corporation and state is such a good thing. Here's why it's going to make you happier. Uh, it just didn't exist. And it still doesn't. Next, let's look at the tools of implementing fascism. I mean, what do they look like? When we hear that description of fascism, that the government is going to control business activity and the corporations or the businesses are going to participate in either this obedience or this give and take, you know, we might think of, you know, that, you know, every day there's uh, a meeting between a government official and someone at the business and maybe they make out a plan and set the rules of what they're going to do and, uh, you know, go forward into that kind of mutual cooperation. But of course that can't happen because even if they were to just apply it to the Fortune 500, there's no way they could meet with that many uh, managers, go into that many details of the the corporation's business. And then, of course, there's that's just the Fortune 500. There's millions upon millions of businesses in America. So there's no way that they can sort of uh, coordinate and collaborate like on a one-to-one -one basis. So what are the tools that they, the government uses or the corporations use to obey uh, that are implementable on that scale? Well, it's the law. It's market limitations like tariffs and fees. It's government purchases. It's subsidy. It's licensure. Registration. And finally, regulation in the hundreds of thousands of pages that are the real tools. And probably uh, a lefty type of person would say, well, we need all of those things uh, to make sure that the corporations aren't uh, continually 
uh, dumping chemicals into my drinking water. Uh, but of course, that's not the only regulation that seems to be on the books. Uh, we wouldn't need a uh, U.S. code, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of pages uh, tailored by every single industry. Uh, basically, when you have these things, again, law, tariffs, fees, government purchases, subsidy, license, registration, and regulation, all you're doing is implementing more fascism. And no one ever says, well, hey, I know how we can solve this problem in the marketplace. Let's use more fascism. Uh, but that's essentially what they do. And then when people rail against corporate greed or the, the evil, unequal performance of these businesses, the answer is never to take away their government power. It's always to add more. So more regulation begets more fascism, which actually begets more of that nasty type of performance and greed that we claim not to like. Some people might say that we actually have a lot of vestiges of free market capitalism, or that the even though those those are hundreds of thousands of pages of regulation, we still have a relatively free economy through most categories of business. And I'm sure, you know, even um, my most government-loving friends would certainly concede that they don't like how the aerospace and defense industry, uh, you know, which gets, you know, pretty much all of that uh, half-trillion-dollar budget every year, uh, or the private prison industry aren't, you know, truly kind of nasty and uh, fascistic. I mean, that, that one's pretty good. And you're like, well, okay, so there's just these two sort of violent industries of uh, killing people and locking up people that are really awful partnerships between pr private corporations and and the government. And really, how how could how could they not be? Like when you're when the thing that creates your market demand is you know the murder of foreigners. Uh, or the imprisonment of people who smoke pot. Uh, all you can do to drive more of that is to create more evil. And so it's like, but the rest of the economy is free, right? Well, you got some of the socialized areas like education and to a growing extent healthcare. So those are sort of wiped out of that whole uh, free market story. So there's no way public education, and I've talked about this plenty, uh, public education, which is um, funded through force and then uh, is <laughs> imposed on people by making them go any kind of free market uh, industry. It's not even it's not even close. Right. And people would admit that, too. It's like, well, OK, so we socialized that. Um, that's sort of like in between, you know, something a fascist government would do. But uh, it's a good thing, even though this is kind of strange because. The only reason why all that uh, crazy nationalism and genocide could possibly take place in Nazi Germany was because uh, the Germans, who invented this process of schooling, indoctrinated all of the children to believe that what they were doing was good. Uh, so if we move on to, say, the banking industry, the financial service industry, this is uh, must be a free market as well. Well, at the very base is we have government-controlled money. And so really there can't be, you could make the argument that you can't have any kind of free market if the government's going to control the and own the entire money supply and be able to manipulate it at their will. 
but even if if we said well you have to have sort of government run currency uh but it's still a free market on top of that the financial services industry of course is heavily protected bailed out by the government super hyper regulated with uh you know multiple associations uh, u.s department of treasury uh, the office of the controller of currency the federal reserve the fdic and the national credit union administration securities and exchange commission the commodity futures trading commission um federal housing finance agency the bureau of consumer financial protection the financial stability oversight council the federal financial institution examinations council president's working group on financial markets i mean just on and on we know that the top 13 banks own the federal reserve which is still a sort of quasi-government but privately owned corporation that prints our money we also know that the government controls interest rates uh so anyway is this are you get sort of like okay maybe this sector is like a little bit little uh fascist um you know then we could go on to you know, say, well, the rest of the market. So, I mean, besides education, prisons, uh, warfare, and financial services, the rest of the market's pretty free. So we could go into, like, energy, natural resources, uh, oil, gas, and coal. Um, again, you know, highly regulated by the Department of Energy and the EPA. And, uh, you know, they, we actually fight wars into natural resources, rich areas. So the government actively kills people. Uh, in support of these industries. So I think we can take them off the table. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about healthcare later, um, not just post-ACA, but even how nastily fascistic it was beforehand. Uh, so what other free market industries do we have? How about pharmaceuticals? Okay. Uh, I, I think this one we can probably put in the fascist column, uh, Food and Drug Administration, uh, basically, there's only a handful of companies that are even allowed to, allowed to participate on this and launch drugs because of the enormous high regulation cost uh, to do clinical trials, etc. Uh, by the way, I'm going to go through, in part two of this podcast, we're going to actually do a power rankings of industry by their fascist score, which would be pretty fun. Could be pretty cool. Okay, so any other industries? How about agriculture, uh, including forestry? hunting, fishing, crops, livestock. Uh, well, I mean, you have the United States Department of Agriculture uh, doing this, and this is always famously um, subsidized. So there's tons of uh, corn subsidies and sugar, you know, sugar restrictions, and uh, they're constantly paying farmers to either produce or not produce things. Uh, it's not really free at all. This is another hyper-fascistic industry. The, it's even even sort of a liberal meme to uh, discuss Monsanto's role in controlling the government in developing its monopolies in you know creating different you know seeds and and pesticides and how its uh, nasty nature is you know poisoning us all and of course that's uh, chalked up to its capitalistic greed not the fact that it can you know buy and own the regulatory body of the government. Oh, how about uh, uh, private education, universities? Um, very heavily subsidized and controlled. The U.S. Department of Education and the Accrediting Agency Evaluation Unit. 
utilities. Uh, up until recently, uh, most were state-run. Uh, many have been privatized, or so they say. But even when they're privatized, it just means that they usually maintain their their monopoly and uh, are then either given protection, uh, special laws, as well as often uh, additional monies. I had actually had a call with a chief operational officer of a major southern utility. This was for an interview I was doing for work. We were writing an article, and he talked about how his industry was privatized. And I was like, well, oh, that's interesting. So, you know, now you're sort of like a free market type of thing. And it's like, yeah, we, uh, the state voted to spin us off. Um, we set a vision for together with the state over why we were doing this. And it was something about, you know, creating more options for consumers. And then the state gave them um, something like $500 million dollars for infrastructure improvements with a contract that the state would award them additional millions of dollars year after year. And I'm like, wow, uh, it just sounds like the the sort of the income, you know, went from, uh, you know, the government to shareholders. And who knows, you know, which way is better? I don't, I don't know if I care, but you can't really say that you've privatized this or you've separated it from government. So utilities, uh, highly fascistic. The legal industry, ah, okay, their whole business is working for the government. Uh, transportation, uh, there's the Department of Transportation, uh, another highly regulated uh, industry. Of course, the government constitutionally maintains control of you know one of the big shippers, which is USPS, and often has to uh, tell these guys uh, what to do. I was I was in another meeting, and this was for. Uh, environment, health, and safety type of paper I was writing, and I was, I met with an executive from one of the big private uh, distribution companies, uh, consumer package delivery companies, and they were boasting about how they were just about to retool their trucks um, and get, a, 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 you know, replace a huge parts of their fleet, and what they decided to do is they lobbied the government to put in new uh, environmental regulations for package delivery trucks, and they sort of internally they boasted it as a big environment, you know, big save for the environment. Uh, what they really did is by having that put into a law, uh, they were easily able to meet it because they were replacing all of their trucks anyways. But what this did is it forced their other competitors to have to turn in all of their assets or reconfigure all their trucks at huge expense to the other company. So it was really just a way of uh, s screwing over their competitors using the government. Uh, pretty fascistic there. Okay. Accounting and auditing. Now this industry kind of irritates me because it's highly related to the stock market, but the there's basically the, you know, the big four uh, accounting firms uh, the, the law requires, you know, most public corporations to undergo uh, an official, you know, government-sanctioned uh, audit and, uh, you know, tax filing and also SEC filing, et cetera, that these big accountant firms do. And uh, that results in $43 billion of revenue for these companies. And then it's this huge process, which by what, you know, the whole world is put on this quarter by quarter uh, end of year type cycle. And we've already seen recent history in the last 10 years, but we had our Enron and WorldCom disasters that 
these these accounting firms uh, can be as corrupt as anybody, but yet they're all, an entire feature. You know, the entire world of accounting is has so little to do with um, this very cool operational stuff of seeing how much revenue you have versus your cost and how much money you're making or you know how you can save money but so much to do with government filings tax returns etc okay automotive so we're almost running out of industries here certainly there'll be some that aren't affected that don't seem to be such a marriage of government and corporation so automotive uh Again, they report to the Department of Transportation, uh, as well as the Federal Trade Commission, Environmental Protection Agency, and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They've also recently, General Motors uh, was subject to a big bailout by the federal government. In fact, they were people were joking, they were calling them government motors. And of course, this industry has experienced uh, lots of uh, protection, um, uh, union, you know, negotiations and and other features that puts it on our our big fascist corporatism list. So some of the highlights, the the places where we really get to see free market, ends up being things like media, entertainment, and communications, although. Historically, the Federal Trade Commission and the FCC uh, and the Media Bureau and stuff have had their talons in this. So for a long time, the, the telephone lines were, were, were uh, made public. Uh, the FCC regulated the only, you know, three major networks. And if you're older like me, you remember a time when there was only uh, three real channels on TV and usually one or two UHF channels, maybe PBS. Uh, they really, and then they, they old, uh, held on to all terrestrial communications. Uh, and, you know, so they had phone, uh, the radio, and TV. And so they this whole industry used to not look so much like a free market industry. It was actually very tightly uh, regulated. If you notice how bad TV was for so long, uh, where, you know, CBS or NBC would just struggle to put together, even with, like, a lot of resources, like good TV. And then what happened when HBO came out with Sopranos and The Wire, and then later when uh, Amazon comes out with The the Man from the High Tower, and, uh, you know, all these, you know, Breaking Bad from, I forget what, AMC or FX... Um, or this new Fargo show, which is just absolutely amazing, is that it's actually pretty easy to make really good TV shows. Because even even networks like FX, which only have like a cable presence and you know not even a, a, probably a fraction of, of advertising base that some of these other channels have, are producing absolutely wonderful uh, TV shows that are gritty and have great stories and wonderful acting. And they're even they're even uh, this this new Fargo one I just saw stars Billy Bob Thornton. And um, and Martin Freeman, who played who was in The Hobbit, so they're getting like really this uh, high class, uh, high quality actors, and because they haven't had to live under the FCC and the Hollywood Code, they've been able to completely operate uh, in in a free market space and create some absolutely wonderful programming, 
And you can tell that this revelation happened once they moved off of this, this, the FCC-controlled networks into the uncontrolled spaces of cable TV and now internet programming, uh, such as what's coming from Netflix and Amazon. Now, just this year, uh, the FCC must have saw that it lost, that people weren't using landlines anymore. The three major networks were becoming highly irrelevant. Uh, broadcast television through the airwaves was disappearing. And, uh, you know, terrestrial radio was being replaced by satellite radio, which they don't regulate. And so their little circle of power, their little uh, fascistic uh, tent there was, was getting so small so fast that they had to do something. So they, they seem to have introduced the fear that the Internet companies, the bandwidth providers, are going to start censoring, uh, even, though, even though it's the government that likes to censor, not uh, private companies. And so they introduced this idea of net neutrality. And this finally gives the struggling FCC a window into making the internet more fascistic for all of us, treating it more like a utility company. And this was uh, on the, the sort of lefty side of the house uh, and in the media. They, they thought this net neutrality was just a great thing to pass because finally things were going to be fair. Completely, uh, apparently... Um, ignorant of how the internet works now. I, I actually did another interview with a, a person in this industry and why you know the bandwidth struggles are going to be so tough going forward is because digital content like web pages or email uh, used to be very small and the delivery time didn't have to be very precise. So if I send an email right now and my coworker doesn't get it for two minutes or 30 seconds or you know even five minutes, it's no big deal. And it's a relatively small message. But now what people do is they have, uh, you know, an HD, streaming HD movie where not only the files are large and complex, but there can be absolutely no interruption in its delivery. Otherwise, the movie stalls and it, uh, it ruins your experience. So what they were looking to do is build these fast lanes within the Internet to be able to um, have these sort of high bandwidth, uh, high reliability, high accuracy applications such as digital streaming video. Uh, but they interpreted that as to mean the people, I guess. They, they sort of scared them into thinking that um, they would slow down the traffic uh, of their alternate.org, uh, only put Fox News uh, advertisements, you know, 24-7, and uh, make slow lanes. So just, you know, the, the presence of a fast lane doesn't mean the presence of a slow lane necessarily. Anyway, so we can sort of congratulate the media entertainment communications industry on moving into our fine fascistic area. Uh, so after you take all of those industries, I mean, those are all the real heavy hitters. I mean, so when we get to things like that, we don't think of as being regulated, like, uh, you know, nail salons, uh, barber shops, which of course you have to be licensed for both of those things, uh, dry cleaners, uh, restaurants, you know, probably have to only meddle a little bit with the city. Uh, you know, consumer electronics is the, probably the the great bastion of the free market. You know, it's where the most amazing things. Everyone everyone loves their iPhone. Uh, they they delight in their flat screen TVs and their computers. And and what happens in this one you know one you know one industry out of so much uh, that doesn't have the government's foot on it? Well. The products become out amazingly quickly with new features. They get cheaper. Uh, 
you know, they, they become cooler. And, you know, to the point where I think pe most people would be fairly terrified if they said, well, we want, you know, I want to buy my iPhone, you know, from the government and have them design that. Or I'm, I want to have a uh, my wedding cake designed, you know, in concert with the government. Uh, you know, I want someone from the government to help me design my interior. You know, pretty much anything that you would want really nice uh, or to be really cool, you wouldn't want the government anywhere close to it. Anyway, so as I said, we're going to actually do a much more detailed uh, look at these 20 industries that I just mentioned. So 20, no, uh, 16. And uh, even go into how the executives intertwine between those. And that'll be part two. So let's go on to something else now. I want to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is healthcare. I really have, I've studied it quite a bit, partly because of its sort of economic and political dimensions, but more because uh, 12 years ago, I opened my own company and I no longer, like most, like a lot of people, got uh, healthcare bundled in with my paycheck from an employer, but instead had to go out and pay for it myself. Uh, with a check that I would have to write. And so the mechanics and the visibility of it were much more apparent to me having to write that check every month. I also did several projects in my company for healthcare companies uh, to see how they worked. And the this is a you know a hot issue politically and in the media, especially you know with the launching of ACA, the Affordable Health the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and now with uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders in the media suggesting that we have a European-style single-payer system. Now, I can see the legitimacy of the complaints that health care is not affordable. Uh, in fact, it is insanely not affordable. Uh, I have the cheapest, cheapest insurance that I'm legally allowed to buy, and it's $1,100 per month for my family. Uh, the plan that I would have had, had I kept the plan I had when I was an employee, would have been closer to about 2600 or I would guess now maybe even up to $3,000 per month. And, you know, if it's, let me do the calculator, 2600 times 12 is $31,200. So that's, that's more money than a lot of Americans even make. Uh, as their entire, not even their take-home, but they're just their gross pay. And so you could see how that would be completely unaffordable. We've also gotten uh, health care bills uh, from, uh, you know, from, from doctors or hospital stays. And, you know, even for like a two-day stay, the bills can range into the tens of thousands of dollars. And to the point where you can't even believe it, you're like, you know, you look at the itemization on the bill and you see the, the aspirin, uh, costs you uh, forty dollars or two hundred dollars. The stay in the room, you know, was you know six or seven thousand dollars for the night, and you're like, well, I could have, um, you know, had I bought my own aspirin and stayed in the Ritz Carlton, it would have only cost me uh, five hundred dollars. And as it was, the, the the hospital room wasn't quite as nice, quite as nice as the Ritz Carlton. Uh, you know, a surgery that has four practitioners working on it uh, for you know three hours can be seven or $10,000. And you're like, well, I know, you know, that we can't possibly be paying all of these guys 
uh, who are in that room, whatever it was, $800 or $900 an hour to give me health care. Now, the mistake people make is that they say, well, our free market system of health care isn't producing, uh, isn't affordable for most people, and isn't producing cheap health care uh, for everybody, you know, including the poor. But really, the problem is, is that even before the ACA, uh, the healthcare system was already a big government fascistic fuckstorm. And really, that's why uh, we don't have healthcare, uh, affordable healthcare. It's because it's illegal to have cheap healthcare. So healthcare is expensive because health, cheap healthcare is illegal. And we can look at this through the different bodies that participate in our pre-ACA healthcare environment. Um, it starts with the AMA, which is, I think, the American Medical Association, which insists that all healthcare providers uh, be licensed, uh, which right there is a protectionist strategy. And so what it in- insists upon is that the person you meet with to have your healthcare done with, the doctor, not only has to go through uh, a ridiculous amount of school and accreditation, but is also someone who makes a lot of money. So if you can only receive care from someone who makes between 500000 and a million dollars per year, it's going to be pretty expensive. You also aren't going to get very much time to uh, hang out with them. So usually with a doctor, you're lucky to get like 10 minutes of physical time where they tell you stuff like, well, maybe you uh, shouldn't eat so much and you should exercise more and not have so much to drink. And of course, this advice could be given by a nutritionist who probably should be your care provider anyways. But you're required to pay someone an enormous amount of money to participate in the healthcare system. And it's illegal for anyone else to give you health advice or prescribe drugs, etc. What they've also done with the insurance system, and part of this is also tying insurance to employment, uh, they've first they've eliminated low-cost insurance through coverage laws. So it used to be, uh, back in the old days, you could get uh, major medical, which is catastrophic insurance, which means you pay like 15 or maybe up to $40 per month. And if you happen to get hit by a bus or catch cancer, then uh, they come in and, and cover the bills. But your routine, routine cost, you would just cover out of pocket, such as when you went to uh, the doctor to get a, a flu shot or whatever. But they've made that low-cost insurance illegal. What they've also done is they've completely uh, obscured the pricing mechanism between the doctor and the patient so that the patient uh, never uh, negotiates for what they get or chooses what they want to buy based on its cost. That is hidden from them because it's part of the insurance transaction. The, the bills are actually negotiated between the insurance provider and the medical organization. And the two people who are really most part of that uh, economic transaction, the doctor and the patient, are completely left out of the pricing decisions decisions, excuse me. Uh, What they've further done is in Massachusetts, where I used to live, uh, where they first implemented ACA before everybody else, uh, then called Romneycare, um, is they now let state legislature negotiate the vast list of healthcare prices with the insurance companies and the providers. So you have these three bodies all really separate, separate from the personal health decisions someone would make. Uh, determining prices. And of course, what happens is prices just go up and up and up. Now, another thing they've done to make healthcare expensive is the FDA. There is only a handful of companies who are legally allowed, and this is because of the, uh, you know, the drug approval legislation to produce medicine. 
Now, for one, what they use is they use IP laws and this very expensive uh, clinical trials process, approval process, to limit the number of competitors who can do it. The process also makes every piece of medicine that they want to uh, put into the marketplace very expensive to develop. It can take uh, years and years, uh, even decades sometimes, and millions or even billions of dollars to just launch a product to see if it's going to be uh, a good seller. Now, what that does is, of course, it not only does it knock out any you know smaller competitors who might want to come and participate in developing you know new drugs and new new treatments, um, you know it also makes the investment decision very difficult. So, if they know they have a big hit like uh, a Viagra uh, or another you know, something that they just know will be instantly marketable and sell a lot, then they make the investment of the decades and the millions or billions of dollars in developing the drug. Uh, if it's something more niche, um, like my, my mother had uh, vulvar cancer, which almost nobody gets, they're not going to invest the money to, to make a pill. And so between that uh, and then not allowing smaller competitors into the marketplace who, who maybe, you know, that maybe that market would have been good enough if had they been legally allowed to compete and their costs weren't so high, uh, they might have made treatment for that. Uh, so this is another way that they've just made you know, drugs, um, which are one of the, the key tools that doctors use, uh, very expensive. Uh, they've also made insurance competition illegal, uh, especially across uh, state borders. Uh, again, the, um, the tying of insurance to employment has been pretty disastrous, in my opinion, in giving people the flexibility to to pick different plans. Uh, you know, it, it just results in the, the only being fewer healthcare companies that have sort of cartelized the the industry. So again, between the AMA, the FDA, the insurance system that, that obfuscates pricing decisions, the separation of customer and provider. Uh, all have been, you know, government forced to make healthcare expensive, and so then the reaction is like, what do we need to do to uh, make healthcare cheaper? Well, let's put more government into it. So it was already horribly fascistic. Let's make it more fascistic. And now, now what they've done, as you know, the ACA is a system where uh, they do, you know, approve only selected vendors to provide care, uh, and then they force everybody uh, to have insurance and if you don't if you don't get some it's illegal uh it's illegal not to buy and they give you a huge fine and presumably if you don't pay the fine i guess worse things could happen now one of the things that prompted the aca and i was talking to a a friend about this who he said well the government looked at the limitations of the market they looked at the status quo right now decided that the free market system wasn't good enough because there was 14 percent of people who weren't covered and they had to do something. And that's, of course, the, the usual, typical reaction of the government is to actually do something. And it was kind of a sad fight if you followed it in the media at all, because there was sort of the, uh, the democratic side of the, the government who was saying, we really need to put in this uh, ACA, uh, which was modeled uh, on the Massachusetts system. And then the Republican side saying, no, let's repeal it, let's not have it. Uh, but the Republicans uh, didn't really say anything about what they should do instead. 
Now, I'm not, uh, you know, all sorts of happy about uh, government saying they're going to do things. But if you do have a non-answer, then you're obviously giving your opponent uh, a pretty, you know, good advantage because they actually had something they wanted to implement, whereas the other answer was just in opposition to it, uh, but with nothing to solve why healthcare was expensive. Now, it would have been an absolute delight if uh, someone opposing the ACA Act said, well, let's stop making healthcare so expensive. Let's make it, you know, let's stop making cheap healthcare um, illegal. And so let's get rid of the AMA and let all sorts of different providers uh, get into the healthcare business. So instead of maybe someone seeing a very high-priced doctor, uh, there would be a nurse practitioner that maybe has an office out of Walmart. Uh, maybe they would have, instead of having 15 minutes uh, to get your heart, heart medicine pills subscribed by the expensive doctor, uh, you could have a nutritionist come over for an entire day for a fraction of the cost, uh, follow you around, uh, give you hints on what to eat, go through your pantry and say, here's some healthy food, here's stuff that's not helping you out. Uh, take a look at your exercise routine. Uh, and, and do all the things that would really give you a, a full insight on how you could be healthy. And then they could say, like, you know, what we'll also do is we'll get rid of these coverage laws. So uh, if you don't want every single, you know, if you're, if you're a man in your, uh, in your 30s and you don't really want mammograms covered under your policy, uh, that's fine. You can buy this cheaper policy uh, that only covers, you know, catastrophic events. And, you know, what, how about we do this thing where we decouple insurance from the uh, the employer and we get rid of this um, this sort of non-insurance model of the HMO where all transactions go through there we'll let customers negotiate their own prices with the providers as they want and uh, we'll see what happens and then let's get rid of the FDA and let's have you know a huge range you know it's sort of like how people develop apps you know there's the big uh, video game makers like EA and then there's every mom and pop who can start up, you know, a solution. So we could have, you know, the market just flooded with all sorts of, of low cost and uh, uh, healthcare solutions, you know, low cost drugs, and then not have a gateway where you have that expensive, you know, AMA certified doctor prescribe it. You know, we could use systems of reputation and, uh, pro you know, private accrediting institutions that could, you know, vouch for the safety and the uh, reliability of the medicine. And, you know, let's just do everything we can to get rid of, you know, to, to make cheap healthcare legal uh, instead of these mechanisms that make it more expensive. That would have been pretty cool. Now, with the ACA, uh, what they could have also done is they might have uh, looked at Massachusetts, which implemented the exact same act uh, about six years prior to the ACA going in. And they could have said, well, you know, somebody actually tried this, um, the, you know, the super fascist uh, healthcare system in Massachusetts. Let's see what happened. And here's an article I wrote uh, about my experience in Massachusetts. Okay, and I wrote this uh, on the passing of ACA, and it's called Reason Healthcare Bill, My Own Romney Care Experience. Congratulations to the uncovered 15 million people, the donut holers, the pre-existers, and everyone else. You will get something very valuable at an incredible price point. Congratulations to those who have the worldview that we should have a zero, zero failure rate in healthcare, that the poor should get quality healthcare with dignity, and that nobody should fall through the cracks regardless of their financial condition. This goal will have been achieved. Congrats to the healthcare corporations too. You just got 15 million new premiums. 
put that on top of the rest of us and the Medicare and Medicaid people uh, who also go through the corporate HMOs. If you look in your grandma's wallet for her Blue Cross medical card, you will see it's not just from the government, it's also from the HMO. You will have a near categorical monopoly cartel in the healthcare space. Only vets and the very wealthy will use non-corporate, non-government healthcare. I have family, clients, and friends who work in this industry, and I make some of my income from HMOs, so I'm a winner too. Here's my story with Romney Obamacare. As politi politically neutral as I can be, I'll describe my experience under the past seven years of Romney Care, the model for this bill, in Massachusetts, where I was just an ordinary guy who bought health insurance for the sole and boring purpose of taking my family to the doctor and hedging against catastrophic acute interventions. So just a, a break here, a catastrophic acute intervention uh, is when you know a really bad thing happens in healthcare, like you have a heart attack or you get hit by a bus. They call that a, an acute intervention. And a lot of the healthcare industry is now focused on getting rid of those acute interventions because they're very expensive. And that's where you see like the emergence of drug reminder plans where you'll get harassed uh, by a robocall to take your heart medication because they really want to avoid the heart attack down the line. Anyway, uh, back to the article. My first plan I bought on my own around 2004 or 2005 was about $350 a month for the husband and wife. I didn't replicate my previous employer's plan as it was too expensive. By around 2006, I had a baby and had to upgrade to a family plan. The premium was about $1,100 per month or about $13,000 per year. No deductible, minimal co-pays, no co-insurance. So there we go. Uh, in 2005, it went $350 and then it went up to $1,100 for a family uh, in 2006. And that was just when it was first introduced. So that $1,100 had no deductible, uh, very little co-pays and co-insurance. And that's an important point. So here's the mechanics of the system. How it works is you go to a website called The Connector and shop for different plans from different HMOs. They are rated gold, silver, and bronze for quality and have different sublevels based on coverage and premiums. You are only allowed to switch the plan for two months out of the year and then are locked in. These two months are the enrollment period. Okay, did you get that? So you actually can only sign up for insurance during that time. If you are low income, the government will subsidize your payment. In other words, they will send you a check to the corporate HMO on your behalf. The qualifications are generous. If you have a big family, for example, you can earn 108,000 a year and still be considered low income. The HMO, like an employer, sends everyone a special 1099 type document that you file with your taxes. If you don't have one, you get a fine. This is the mandate. The penalty is 50% of the lowest premium. Currently, that would be about $6,000 per year, and you would still not have insurance. Uh, you would still just use the regular bad debt ER room crap that many endure now. And so the regular bad debt ER room crap is people without insurance uh, still go to the hospital, and but instead of making an appointment with their doctor, they go to the, the ER room, and they still receive care. And then what they do is they either they ignore the bills when they come, uh, but even if they accumulate like lots of bad ER debt, they will still be taken care of if they go in. The mandate is the counterweight to the no pre-existing conditions aspect. Neither can function without the other. Without the mandate, you wouldn't bother to pay premiums until you needed care. 
Even that first night in the hospital after the heart attack would be less expensive without insurance than paying the premium month after month. So just to keep this straight, penalties are paid to the government, premiums are paid to the HMO corporation, subsidies ultimately get paid to the HMO corporations, HMOs pay doctors and hospital systems, Medicare payments are from the government to HMO corporations. Okay, so more about me. So by around 2009, or three years later, uh, my premiums had grown to $1,500.50 per month, or about $19,000 per year. No deductible, reasonable co-pays. Had I stuck with my employer's plan, it would have been around $26,000 per year. Finding this rate unattractive, I downgraded to a plan that was only $700 a month, but had a $10,000 deductible and more meaty co-pays and fewer things covered. For example, ER visits would be a $500 copay. Okay, the state protects the consumer against price gouging. Premiums are actually negotiated by the state government on the public's behalf by our democratically elected representatives. This is the public safeguard that the companies won't gouge us. I've gotten several letters in the mail from the state explaining how they have frozen and reversed previous decisions. Every year, rates rise about 15 to 17% annually. This is a great case study for a monopoly buyer versus a monopoly seller, but we can do this economic lesson some other time. By 2012, the exact same plan had rose from $700 to $1,200 per month, or around $14,000 per year. $10,000 deductible, same coverage. This year, I've now switched to the lowest tier uh, of the bronze category. It's the very lowest payment to be compliant with the law. It's $970 uh, per month or $12,000 per year. This is the absolutely lowest level of coverage available with the most out-of-pocket cost and the narrowest provider networks. So that's the means it's the crappiest plan and already it exceeds the, uh, you know, the, the plan that had no, um, had wide coverage and, and uh, no deductible, etc. So I close with uh, great care. The care we receive is gen generally superb. Uh, we go to the doctor frequently. We pursue anything and everything medically. Uh, I even got an MRI once because my golf swing was causing me pain in the shoulder, and that's true. Um, and of course, I only did that because I didn't have to pay for it. It was already lumped in this thing I was forced to buy. But now what they didn't do is when they were bringing up the ACA, they didn't say, well, let's look at the six years history in Massachusetts and see what happened. And, uh, well, what happens is Massachusetts had the highest health care uh, uh, premiums, health care insurance costs in the entire country, and it had gone up 15 to 17% per year, which is a lot faster than claimed inflation, uh, just because of the, uh, of the program. So they actually had, like, empirical evidence and, like, a data set that they could have looked at, but they were like, fuck it, uh, this is a good idea. And it was even a big key part of, like, the Romney and Obama debate. And the funny part about that is Romney uh, prides himself on architecting this system. And I believe in his uh, governor portrait in the Massachusetts State House, uh, it's a picture of him, like, sitting on his desk, and his Romney care legislation is sitting next to him. I, I can verify that. So I met with another healthcare client, and this was a consultant who was trying to figure things out for the healthcare industry as it was going through these changes. And we actually got a lot of HMO work during this time because anytime there's a bunch of new regulation and legislation, 
uh, it creates a ton of changes within the business model and ultimately in the systems uh, of these companies, which generates a huge amount of consulting and IT work, uh, which I wouldn't be surprised if the sort of the IT and consulting companies don't cheer on, if not somehow actively encourage big changes, sweeping changes in legislation just for the follow-on business that they were going to get. But this one was, this was a conversation on medical loss ratios. And a medical loss ratio is the amount of money a uh, HMO can spend on actual care versus the amount of money that they spend on their own marketing administration and internal salaries. And in a a normal run company, uh, there would be, this would, you know, the goal would always be to, to minimize the amount of money you pay out, of course, by doing, you know, things effectively and maximizing those profits uh, so that people can have higher salaries and you make more money. And of course, there is something aesthetically, you know, sort of evil looking about this when it comes to healthcare, because the image is that, and this is probably the truth, is that healthcare companies are only going to want to spend uh, as little as they want, so they're going to claim, deny claims from you know legitimately sick people seeking care, and that could certainly happen. Uh, but what gets weird is when you have a fixed ratio of how much premiums come in to how much you have to spend on care, you manage that number no matter what. So you may very well, very well desire that the overmount that you spend is bigger because if you only have an eighty to twenty. Uh, medical loss ratio, meaning you have to spend 80% of your money on care, that 20% of your profits and your administrative costs and your salaries uh, is limited to, you know, being a fraction of that 80%. So the more you can grow that 80% piece, um, the more you spend on health care, the bigger you're allowed to have that other piece be. And since you're raising premiums, negotiating with the legislature instead of with consumers, uh, you have this great incentive to just go get that 15 to 17% raise in premiums every, uh, every year, uh, even if it means you're spending more money on care. You actually, as a healthcare company, now want to have more money, that, that bigger piece to spend on care so that you can maximize how much money you're going to make as, uh, as individuals and as a corporation. So the incentive for medical loss ratios, although it sounds like it could be very beneficial and uh, you know, justice laden for the the uh, people getting care. It really is just an incentive to drive the premiums higher and higher and higher, and have no one ever bring them down. Another uh, an odd thing about um, these two companies, the legislation that they were they were talking about is there was one company or a set of companies that catered to more older adults, uh, and therefore had a much higher time meeting the medical loss ratio. Uh, on a positive side, meaning that they were exceeding, which is, is still within the law, but they were uh, having like 90% of their uh, monies going to care and were really struggling on the administration and profit side because uh, because of the, the population, the, the demographics of their um, the, the patients they were looking over. And then there's another company that focused more on younger demographics who were getting lower premiums, but none of their people were really going to the doctors. So they were exceeding... Uh, the medical loss ratio where they're only paying 70% on care. And of course they would be in violation of the law if that's the case, or if any company that was just particularly high performing, uh, perhaps that they, they mitigated those acute interventions by making sure patients took their medicine. Um, they did preventative care. 
Um, they did more health, you know, uh, health education and awareness. You know, if they did any of those things where they just really managed their systems better, they would get penalized for not making the medical loss ratio. Um, so what they were toying around with, and I never know if they actually did this, is they were going to sort of do um, similar to what they do in the NFL, where they were going to, uh, every time a company overperformed, they would take some of those profits and give it to all the companies that were underperforming to even out the playing field and even out the, the amount of money everybody was making. And that sort of egalitarian idea is absolutely horrible because what you're doing is you're incentivizing all companies to be poorly performing and you're punishing companies from being highly performing. And, you know, to think that we'd want that kind of situation, so it'd be like a race to the bottom and to think that we want that situation in healthcare, uh, just sounds insane to me. And basically the whole, this whole fascistic attitude toward healthcare is very scary. Cause as we t- talked about before, you never want, you know, a wedding cake or your iPhone or your interior design or your haircut or whatever provided by the government. And to think is something as vital to our lives as, you know, being healthy and getting over illnesses, uh, to put that into a fascistic mindset is just going to be humanity suicide. Uh, the next, as we talked about in the wealth inequality podcast, you know, the next best advance in our, our society and our wealth and our well-being is when they sincerely, um, seriously postpone or eliminate death altogether. And by going down this crazy fascistic path with healthcare, we're almost guaranteed never to get to that point um, where some innovator is going to be able to come up with the remedy for death itself. So that part uh, really makes me sad, especially since, you know, being 45 years old, I may have been able to live to see that uh, instead of having that ultimate poverty, which is dying. Some might ask that now that we have created such a fascistic mess out of our healthcare system, going from pre-ACA fascistic fuckstorm to super uh, hypercharged fascistic uh, fuckstorm of, you know, making people uh, buy these corporate plans um, and seeing that it's just going to get more expensive and care is probably going to get worse and uh, more rationed. Would it be better at this point, knowing that no one's going to go in for the free market model to just go a, a whole hog into a single payer system like they have in Europe? And my answer is probably my opinion uh is as long as they don't do it like Cuba or Flor- or uh, Canada, where they make the uh, a free market illegal, it probably would be better because uh, then it would just be you know it doesn't have to come be bundled with the employer. Uh, it could come out of our, our taxes, and all the people who wanted to use the system would. Now, what would happen is that public system would degrade over time, and the good doctors would flee the system, and only like sort of the bad doctors would stay within it. Uh, normal care would be rationed. Uh, to the point where if you needed an MRI uh, or any kind of uh, scarce type of treatment, you know, you might get put on a uh, waiting list for six months. Uh, But the nice thing that would happen with that system is that you could still have uh, a free market riding on top of it. So what I've been told is a lot of people like in Spain and England, uh, just about everybody has a private doctor that they pay out of pocket. And they might even have private insurance too. So the, they're still on the high quality for, you know, middle class to rich people. You can still have that free market experience and 
you can avoid like sort of the public thing. Uh, and if you opt, maybe you could, you know, maybe you want to put your, your catastrophic into the public uh, system or not. Uh, but you don't have to participate. And it gets, you know, a free market could still exist and then um, all the uh, lefties get off your back. So I think it's, it wouldn't be as good as a free market system, but it would probably at this point uh, be an improvement for what we have now. I've talked, I've had conversations with some people who don't buy my whole free market healthcare story and that it could actually make things cheaper uh, because they, of course, they, they would see they, the already the whatever the profit laden system that we have now is being fundamentally capitalistic, which isn't true. As we've said before, it's fascistic. But if you want to look at a couple medical categories that show what free market healthcare costs are, is you can look at the ones that aren't covered under insurance. And so that's like plastic surgery, dentistry, um, eye surgery, and optometry, and uh, chiro, you know, chiropractors. And so the dentist, you go there, and I haven't had dental insurance in years. And, you know, you have your, your checkup, and it's like 70 bucks. Uh, my wife had surgery done on her mouth, uh, which had, you know, four wisdom teeth removed, uh, required an uh, anesthesiologist, and the whole thing was $1,200. And any other procedure like that, where they put you under and seriously cut bone and everything, at a hospital probably would have been 10 times that amount. The same for, like, LASIK eye surgery. Uh, you can now see, like, in those uh, grocery flyers you get in the mailbox where they'll do an eye for $400. So they'll actually do surgery on your eyeball for 400 bucks, which is like nothing, uh, you know, in terms of when you compare it to the medical cost you'd incur in a hospital. So we actually have some examples of how some free market healthcare works. And it's, it can't be very hard to imagine that all the other procedures from, you know, having your blood pressure checked to routine surgery couldn't be affordable as well. Here's my last reflection on fascistic healthcare, and it's just a personal anecdote, is we just had the turn of the year, and the I had the cheapest plan I could get legally here in South Carolina, and it was $900 and change. And as the year turned over, uh, now that we're subject to ACA, the plan went up to uh, 1100 and, and change. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, I was sort of expecting it. What is that? That's like about a 20% increase. So of course we would expect uh, that, uh, an increase like that, knowing what we know about what happened in Massachusetts. Uh, but the comical thing is they uh, took all of my doctors, my, all my family doctors out of the network. So we now have to find all new doctors and they only um, have them at these sort of like cheap uh, retail uh, express clinics. So all of the the sort of the high quality doctors have been taken out of our reach. So it's really kind of sad on a day to day basis. I'm going to go through an article I've uh, I found on Facebook, but it, it, it first appeared on Salon in 2014. Uh, called Five Ways Privatization is Fleecing American Taxpayers. Uh, government outsourcing goes horribly wrong more often than not. Here are a few representative horror stories. This is by Dave Johnson from Alternet. And it starts, For decades, we've been subjected to constant propaganda that government is inefficient, bureaucratic, and expensive. 
uh, we're told that the answer is to privatize or outsource government functions to private businesses, and they will do things more efficiently, and everyone comes out ahead. As a result, we have experienced decades of privatization of government functions. Well, let's just... The, that uh, that first statement that there's constant propaganda that government is inefficient, bureaucratic, and expensive is kind of funny because uh, the sort of masters of propaganda would be the government itself. I don't, I'm not sure they actually say that. Um, but anyways, let's go with the main premise that, uh, that the answer is to privatize and uh, these things will be more efficient. So he goes on to tell uh, five privatization horror stories where government outsourcing has gone terribly wrong. Uh, and his examples are interesting. Uh, there's Chicago parking meters, toll roads, prisons for profit, uh, cost overruns, such as, um, as uh, I think they list payroll here. And then he just closes with uh, government outsourcing anything. And you can tell, you know, what they do is they sort of use the rhetoric of free markets, such as efficiency. Um, and they apply it to these things that can't possibly be made free market in their current state. So the Chicago parking meter um, disaster here is uh, basically they let a private company collect, um, enforce, you know, parking tickets and collect the money from the, the meters on their behalf. And, you know, the company ended up writing more tickets than it probably should. But you can't have, you know, government-owned parking spots and the idea of parking tickets somehow be a free market concept because they're, they're both uh, sort of operations of, of government ownership and force. And so to, to say that this was a, sort of a private affair uh, doesn't make any sense. What they did is they took a socialized good and they made it more fascistic, very similar to that power company example that I gave you earlier. You know, they didn't privatize. They just took... Uh, something you know bad in government and made it with private profits same with the toll roads you can i don't have to even go through these prisons are some probably the most disgusting uh one of the most disgusting fascistic elements in our society um where they, where they did privatize um the, the prison system to make it more efficient but their whole supply chain can only be you know uh, people deemed imprisonable by the government and so every incentive that would ever be sort of profit-driven uh, is just an absolute shitstorm. So if we were to completely eliminate the idea of freedom of laissez-faire capitalism from the equation and had a pick between fascism and socialism, you know, which one would be better? And I think most people, especially in the media uh, and people who support the government, would say, well, if fascism is government control with private profits and socialism is government control with government uh, income, uh, they'd probably pick the socialism path, even though they wouldn't see those uh, as being profits because they would see the government taking them and uh, somehow that be, you know, that money being belonged by, you know, being owned by the population at large, even though that's not true. Because when the government takes money, uh, you don't own it just because uh, they, they tell you you do. And in the end, I guess I would go with fascism 
uh, because at least while everything would be all cocked up, uh, there would still be people competing for that government's attention and money. And so a little bit of progress would have to be eked out uh, over time uh, to ensure that they get that paycheck. Whereas probably in socialism, everything would just sort of freeze, uh, sort of like school did when they first invented it. Um, and very little progress would be made going forward. And eventually there'd probably be more rationing and uh, more poverty. Now, I, I would see uh, some people on the left today arguing that this thing we have like democratic or, or Sweden-style socialism where there is some aspects like education, healthcare, college, uh, pensions that are, are fully socialized, and then the rest of it is a mixed economy where the government heavily regulates and subsidizes the business. Well, that's not really socialism, as we've already talked about. That's just more fascism. So in that regard, it's like, do you want fascism or do you want fascism with philosophy or fascism with a fake name called democratic socialism? In the end, regardless of what you call it, all central violence and authority attracts money and power. So whether it has uh, socialism with philosophy, meaning uh, that it is for you know, publicly owned for the public good, that's still going to uh, attract private interest to take that money and that power. If we call it fascism with philosophy, meaning we use the term and it's non-pejorative and say we really want to have uh, this mixed economy where the government and business uh, cooperate, uh, there's the, the, the money takers on either side are going to be attracted to the central violence and the authority that the government brings. In the end, you can't regulate fascism because fascism is regulation. Fascism is government. So there is no government solution to make less fascism. Anything you do uh, is going to just enforce more fascism going forward. So those tools of regulation, law, subsidy, uh, tariff, protectionism, etc., can never be used to reduce the effects of fascism. It can only be made to increase it. So in the end, um, I think freedom is preferred. We talked about quite a bit that anything good, you know, from your computer to a gourmet meal, you would never want a fascistic system in place to deliver it. You really want the most creativity you possibly can in those kind of interactions. The free market is the only one that's not a zero-sum, win-lose games. In capitalism, every transaction creates more value for both parties. It always has to be a win-win. Because if I have $5 and you have a Subway sandwich, you value my, you know, as a store, you value my $5 more than you value the sandwich. I value the sandwich more than the $5. And so by trading, we've both become richer. And so only in a system where perpetual wealth like that is made, a win-win system is really going to be best for us. If there's any lesson from this podcast that I'm hoping to get through, and it's what I, I said in the beginning is that we have to stop shying away from using the word fascism and either apply it to what we have now and say it's awful, apply it to what we have now and say it's a bad idea, or admit that it's what we really want, that most of society wants this partly socialized and then partly mixed corporate uh, government system. Because that's what they're saying. If uh, you listen to anything coming out of Washington, D.C., or the media, 
they essentially, without using the, the F word, they say that fascism is good and that we should want more of it. And if they were honest like that, then we could at least have a decent debate. But as it is now, we go along having fascism without a philosophy. Our governors, our leaders, and our populace beg for more of it without ever giving it its true name. And then go on and just keep complaining that our healthcare is too fucking expensive, that uh, people are getting poor, that the cost of things is going up, that the, the bankers are uh, looting everything, that uh, life is getting worse, and that everybody's corrupt. Oh, and we also, I say we, but the government also kills and imprisons people for profit. So, everyone, you can have your fascism, but let's just call it what it is.